What's going on, everybody? Welcome on into the Matt Lombardo Show presented by Heavy Sports. Of course, I am Heavy Sports NFL insider Matt Lombardo. Great to be with you another week. What an NFL Sunday it was. Big changes at the top of this league after some of the more exciting games that we've seen all season. One of the more surprising outcomes on Monday night. We have a big show on tap. We're going to break it all down, get into one of the more fascinating offseason decisions that's facing any team across the NFL. We'll hand out the Lombardo Trophy, make our pick of the week. And I have a take that I have to get off my chest. We'll get into all of that and a whole lot more. But before we do, if you enjoy the podcast, if you really enjoy the show, you like the guests and the, anal- the analysis we bring every single week, I'd really love and appreciate it if you went in and you subscribed in the Apple Podcast Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. And go to YouTube and subscribe to the Heavy Sports channel on YouTube. Give us a five-star review. Let us know what you like, what you don't like about the show. We'll go and try to get a guest on if you make a guest suggestion. And it'll be a lot of fun, but those reviews really help grow the show and we really appreciate them. But I want to start with one of the bigger surprises that we've seen across the NFL. And that was Monday night in Philadelphia because the Eagles entered that game as the last of the unbeatens. They were 8-0, firing on all cylinders. Jalen Hurts had played his way squarely into the NFL MVP conversation and they were handed their first loss. They lost to the Washington Commanders 32-21. to And I know that the, the 32 is a little bit misleading because there was the razzle-dazzle lateral that was fumbled and recovered in the end zone by the Commanders to uh, get that final touchdown as the, t- the clock expired. But that game felt like it was really out of reach for the Eagles ever since midway through the second quarter onward. And this was a team, the Eagles, that hadn't trailed in the second half the entire season up until Monday night. And and now, after what happened at the link, it really feels like the blueprint has been written to an extent on how to beat Philadelphia, both by the commanders who pulled it off. They got the win. They escaped South Philly with a win on Monday night, but also by the Houston Texans, who only trailed the Eagles by four points going into the fourth quarter last Thursday night. The Eagles scored eight unanswered points in the fourth to put that game on ice, but that was... That was a tough game for Philadelphia as well. And you think about this, this is an Eagles team that's suddenly pretty vulnerable, especially against the run on defense. Washington ran it down their throats. They rushed for 152 yards just 11 days after the Texans gashed the Eagles front seven for 168. And I know that Jordan Davis is out. He's the rookie. He's the first round pick. He's the run stuffer that everybody thought was going to be the difference maker up front and kind of solve some of these issues on a defense that's loaded with playmakers at all three levels. But on Monday night, it was pretty obvious. That was what the commanders were going to do. They had a game plan. They stuck to it. And they were going to pound the rock with Brian Robinson Jr. and Antonio Gibson all night long until the Eagles defense found a way to stop them or at least limit them. And they never did. Washington just ran it down the throat the whole night. And what a great story. Brian Robinson Jr., by the way, gets shot in the leg right before the season starts, goes on IR, comes all the way back. Tremendous story. And he's now become a focal point of that offense. And he really had his coming out party against the Eagles on Monday night in a tough spot, a hostile environment, division rival. Just as a quick aside, good for Brian Robinson. What a feel-good story that is. But the Eagles' issues weren't just limited to their defense on Monday night because you look at what's powered the Eagles all year long. 
it's been Jalen Hurts and that offense. It's been Jalen Hurts having an MVP caliber year, improving dramatically from the pocket, picking his spots when to run, and late in games when they have a lead to protect, they just pedal down and they run the football into it. Washington did to them for 60 minutes. That's been their MO. That's been Nick Sirianni's game plan. Salt out the win late with Miles Sanders and that backfield. They didn't get the chance to Monday night, obviously, but that offense, that Eagles offense was really out of sync all night long. A.J. Brown looked like he got banged up early on on that catch along the sideline, but the Eagles still turned it over three times, four times, if you count the face mask penalty that was somehow not seen by the ref, even though his helmet was practically ripped off his face. But the commanders didn't just take the ball away. They scored 10 points off turnovers, off those two. So this is a team that the Eagles, the reason they were undefeated, or one of the big reasons they were undefeated, and we've talked about it on the show, I've written about it in my columns on Monday and Wednesday mornings, their turnover differential going into Monday night was plus 15. That means they've added 15 more possessions on offense through the course of the entire season. The average NFL game, a team only has 12 possessions. So when you're adding effectively another game on offense, it's no wonder that you're winning games. It's no wonder that you're undefeated when you essentially have your offense on the field for another game over the course of a season. So you look at what the Eagles have been able to do. You look at their winning formula. Get a lead salt it out late, and get that lead by creating turnovers. With all the weapons Philly has, you give them 15 extra possessions, they're going to score a lot of points. They're going to win a lot of games. But here comes the problem. And here's why I think the Eagles need to find a new formula down the stretch to win. Because it's great to be 8-1. and It really is. But you look at that division, and we're going to look at it shortly. The margin for error is razor thin. And here's the problem. The next three games the Eagles face, Indianapolis Colts, Jonathan Taylor, Green Bay Packers, Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon, Tennessee Titans, Derrick Henry, New York Giants, Saquon Barkley. Notice a pattern here. Three of the top running backs in the league coming right down, right down the pike at you when your front seven is reeling. When your defense can't figure out how to stop the run, when you're suddenly vulnerable against the run, you now have to face four of the top running backs in the NFL. Here's the other problem. The Giants, they have a plus four turnover differential, so they're protecting the football pretty well themselves. Titans plus three. They're doing a nice job of protecting the football, creating takeaways, and the way the Giants are winning right now is a swarming, menacing defense that's feeling itself and gaining confidence every week. I'm not so sure that I love that matchup for the Eagles twice. They might split there, but the Giants are playing well. They've figured out that if you run the ball effectively, you don't turn it over, and you play good defense, you're going to be in a lot of games late. And their defense has made some really timely takeaways late in games. It's how they beat Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. It's how they beat Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. It's become their MO. And if the Eagles come out as flat as they did against the Commanders, The Giants are a better football team. The Giants are a much better football team than the Washington Commanders. So the Eagles are 8-1, and that's great. But protecting the football and continuing to create takeaways and then scoring off of those takeaways, that might be vital to them in a division that's become the most competitive division 
in the entire in the entire league. Because here's the deal: if you think back to the spring and summer, people were still laughing at the NFC East. It was still the NFC least. People as early as week two, when the Eagles played the Vikings on Monday Night Football, were kind of wondering why do people keep putting the NFC East in prime time. Here's here's the issue, right? I live in Philadelphia. I grew up here. So I understand the fan base here. The Eagles are 8-1. and one. I'm used to fan bases overreacting. I, I'm used to talk radio. I did talk radio in Philadelphia for three years. I, I was the guy who was on after the Eagles postgame show on Sunday afternoons and nights and weekends in Philadelphia. I, I know the fan base here pretty well. And I think the fans in Philadelphia right now need to pull an Aaron Rodgers and R-E-L-A-X. You need to relax just a little bit here. I think the calls on talk radio on on Tuesday for defensive coordinator Jonathan Gannon to be fired are kind of silly and really overreactionary when you think of how dominant this defense has been all year and the fact that they're trying to overcome a pretty big injury up front. But this thing could get a little hairy for the Eagles in a hurry. It really could if they don't figure out what has gone wrong over the last two games and figure out a way to fix it either by stacking an extra linebacker in the box or putting a a, a bigger package up front on obvious running situations, something. Because this division, the NFC East right now, it's everything that we all thought the AFC West was going to be going into the season. The Eagles lead over the Giants is just one game. The Cowboys are 6-3 and with a pretty ferocious defense led by Micah Parsons and a really dominant secondary. And if the regular season ended today, only the Washington Commanders would be on the outside looking in at the NFL playoffs. And they're 5-5. Five and five. They're only a half game behind the San Francisco 49ers. So there's a, a, a legitimate chance that three teams from the NFC East make the, the NFL playoffs. And there's a possibility all four do. So the NFC East is really everything that we thought the AFC West was going to be. Because remember all the talk about that being the best division in football? Well, yeah, the Chiefs are the number one seed in the AFC, and they're playing great football right now. You look at what they did against Jacksonville. You look at the the, the couple of big wins they've had over the last couple of weeks. You look at Patrick Mahomes. Now with Kadarius Toney, seems like they have another game-changing, game-altering weapon that GM Brett Veach picked up off the scrap heap. They have a lot of pieces there. They always have. The Chiefs look as tough to beat as ever. But the rest of that division? Below average. Half the division is under 500. The Raiders, they look like a traveling three-ring circus that finds new ways to lose every week. Josh McDaniels, I don't know that you he could I don't know that Josh McDaniels could spell the word win if you spotted him the W and the I. They're a mess. Father Time looks like he's finally caught up to Russell Wilson. The Broncos are pretty far away too. You don't have gimmies like that on the schedule in the NFC East. If the Eagles win that division, it is going to be a real gauntlet. They will have survived a real test just to win that division and just to get one of the top seeds in the NFC. And there's still a football, a lot of football left to be played. And the Eagles still might be the most complete team in the NFL. But even at 8-1, and one, They're going to have to survive a real test. The Eagles' remaining schedule is the 11th toughest in the NFL. They have three games against division opponents. So we're going to find out a lot about the entire NFC after those games. 
two against the Giants and one against the Cowboys. And speaking of the Giants, they have a really interesting offseason coming up here. It, it, it might be one of the most fascinating offseasons of any team across the entire NFL. And before we recorded this show on Tuesday, I spent a lot of time on the phone with people on the team side of the equation in a couple of buildings around the NFL with agents who represent prominent running backs across the league, some people who are pretty familiar with Daniel Jones's situation and how quarterback contracts are structured. The Giants are going to have to figure out what to do with Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones at once. And general manager Joe Shane, he may need to walk a real tightrope here. Because here's the thing. The Giants have $53 million in cap space going into the offseason. So they have plenty of spending flexibility. That's not going to be the issue. They're, they're not up against the cap. And to Shane's credit, he's done a really excellent job of kind of being the anti-Dave Gettleman in a way that they haven't pushed money from this season into future years. They haven't sacrificed future cap space for the sake of short-term solutions to short-term problems. So in theory, the Giants could use the franchise tag on Daniel Jones after they didn't pick up his fifth-year option leading into the NFL draft this year. And one agent suggested to me that that's the best thing that's ever happened to Saquon Barkley that the Giants may need to tag the quarterback because the franchise tag quarterback for a running back is just $9 million. The franchise tag for a quarterback is $29.6 million, is at least what it's expected to be in 2023. And I would argue that for as well as Daniel Jones has played by Daniel Jones standards, the Giants are winning right now not because of Daniel Jones, but because of Saquon Barkley. Saquon carried the ball 37 times on Sunday. Daniel Jones threw it. 17 times in a big win against the Houston Texans. Saquon is one of three running backs in the NFL, averaging 100 rushing yards per game. And he leads the NFL in rushing, and he's going to surpass 1,000 yards on Sunday afternoon. So Barkley acknowledged after the game on Sunday that they've had long-term contract extension talks with the Giants during the bye week. So it would seem that the thought or the notion or the plan to tag Saquon Barkley, to use the franchise tag on him, that that ship may have sailed, especially now that you have to figure out what the heck you're going to do with Daniel Jones. So it would seem like that move is off the table. If you're having long-term contract talks, you've gone from using the franchise tag on run, running back as plan A to maybe being a contingency plan. So at this point, I'm not so sure that the Giants should or will go in all in on a long-term contract extension with Saquon Barkley either. I don't know that that makes a lot of sense because remember, he's a guy with a couple of high ankle sprains. He's a guy with a torn ACL. He's a guy that's been injury prone. And we've saw in 2021, the kind of lingering effects that that ACL injury had. He's one of the more explosive running backs in the league today. And he looks better than he did in 2018 as a rookie. And a lot of credit for that goes to not only Saquon, but the way Brian Dable and offensive coordinator Mike Kafka have used him. But I'm not so sure that because of those concerns with his durability and his injury history, both sides have to know that, by the way. The, the Giants have to know that. The agent has to understand that. They both have to see it. I almost think what's most likely here is the outcome that a couple of league sources suggested to me on Tuesday that even though NFL Network is reporting that Saquon Barkley's side 
views him in in line with Christian McCaffrey and a Christian McCaffrey type of deal to make him the highest paid running back in the NFL, that that's probably not going to happen. And as a couple of league sources suggested to me, what appears to be most likely here is that they might let Saquon Barkley shop in free agency, ask around, try to find his worth. Seems risky to me. But if you tell Saquon Barkley to ask around, see what offers you get, and we will guarantee we'll match anything, that's a possibility. I don't think that's how it winds up playing out. I think it's too much of a risk from the Giants' side. But a former general manager who works in a front office outlined a scenario to me that I think makes a lot of sense. That if he were Joe Shane and he were the Giants, that he'd be trying to put together a deal that's really similar to the Cleveland Browns contract with Nick Chubb for Saquon Barkley. Three-year deal, probably in the range of 12 to $14 million per season. And the former GM stance is that both sides have to know and understand the durability concerns. Both sides have to know and understand that an 18-game schedule is coming, that it's a long year. No position is more ravaged by, by injuries and more uh, impacted and affected by the long-term effects of those injuries than a running back. Saquon Barkley has already been banged up. And when the league does go to 18 games, the odds of teams having just one bell cow running back being successful and that being enough are probably slim. Just as it's probably slim that one running back is going to hold up to the wear and tear and the punishment of an 18-game schedule. Saquon Barkley is a special talent. He might be the most versatile and explosive running back in the entire NFL. You don't need a special talent at that position to win a Super Bowl. It's been proven time and time again. So the Giants could very well wind up getting Barkley on a three-year deal worth about $13 million. That could wind up being the going rate for Saquon Barkley this offseason. And the Giants really have played themselves on the field into a really unique spot here because they, they basically punted on having one more year to evaluate Daniel Jones by declining his fifth-year option. They could have had him for one more year on his rookie deal, and they decided against that. He's having a really consistent year. I wouldn't say Daniel Jones is playing great, but he's having the most consistent season of his entire career. He only has two interceptions. And Barkley has played his way into potentially signing a massive contract after the plan might have been to let him walk and go draft a running back in April or put him on the franchise tag and bring him back for one more year. So if I were a betting man, I'd look for the Giants to use the franchise tag on Daniel Jones. I think that's probably where this is headed because I can't see the Giants tying their long-term future to Daniel Jones beyond 2023. I can't see Joe Shane and Brian Dable and the Giants risking not getting their choice of quarterback in the NFL draft, even if a couple of executives have told me they think as many as five quarterbacks could be chosen in round one. If the Giants go 10 and 7, 11 and 6, and make the playoffs, you're picking like 16th. So you'd have to trade up probably into the top 10 to go and get a quarterback. And they've kind of won enough games to take themselves out of the conversation for C.J. Stroud and Will Levis and Bryce Young, the top three. You can't risk settling on a first-round quarterback and not getting your guy. So that's why I think Jones is back for one more year on the franchise tag. And we'll see how it plays out from there. But focusing on this season for one second here, I don't know that there's a team that I would want to play less in the postseason than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And look, 
Last week, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about how the Minnesota Vikings were the best team that no one's talking about. They weren't getting enough pub. And look what happened. The Vikings go out, they go into Buffalo, and they won maybe the greatest regular season NFL game that I've ever seen. That game had it all. Might have been the best regular season NFL game in league history. The fourth quarter in overtime, if you just turn in for the fourth quarter in overtime, you saw everything. And you saw a full game's worth of action in those two quarters. Justin Jefferson's ridiculous one-handed catch, which we'll get into later, was on fourth and 18 to keep the the Vikings drive alive. You had that really bizarre fumble along the goal line by Josh Allen when he could have just taken the safety and they would have punted and given the ball back with virtually no time left for the Vikings. And then Allen threw the interception that basically sealed the win for Minnesota. That had it all. And and like we talked about last week, the Vikings suddenly have the resume, they have the confidence, and the character to be maybe the second best team in the NFC behind the Philadelphia Eagles. But I think there's another team lurking. There's another team looming. There's another team that I absolutely would want no part of for many reasons. First of all, first of which, the biggest of which being Tom Brady. Because if you woke up early on Sunday morning and watched that game in Munich, I have one question. Does anyone want to play Tom Brady in the Buccaneers right now? Would anyone feel comfortable with what they saw on Sunday in the postseason, in the playoffs, in a win-or-go-home situation with Brady playing like that? Because that game against a playoff-caliber Seattle Seahawks team with a really good defense It felt like a get-right game for the Buccaneers and for Tom Brady. Brady threw for 258 yards, two touchdowns, one pick, had a quarterback rating of 111. Julio Jones looked like a playmaker again. We've seen Julio Jones kind of slowed by nagging injuries. He's kind of been what we expected him to be when the Buccaneers signed him just before training camp, a guy who you'd throw out there in the red zone, maybe make a couple big touchdown catches for you, but he wasn't the same wasn't going to be the same playmaker that he was early in his career as, as a multi-time All-Pro. He looked like one on Sunday. The speed came back a little bit in Munich on Sunday. Maybe he had a couple of those pretzels, those Oktoberfest-style pretzels over there before the game. Chris Godwin caught a touchdown, his first since tearing his ACL last December 20th. And as one Buccaneers executive texted me on Sunday night, Julio Jones and Chris Godwin are finally getting healthy at the right time. And you think about that. Why have the Buccaneers struggled to this point in the season? They obviously don't have Robert Gronkowski. He retired. It's been a rotating cast of wide receivers and Scotty Miller. You know, the hands haven't been great. A lot of drop passes, not a lot of reliable wide receivers. Brady and the Bucs have kind of been going through a little bit of what Aaron Rodgers had been in Green Bay with the growing pains from Christian Watson and Christian Watkins and, and, and his receivers up there. But Tampa's currently the number four seed in the NFC. They're getting healthy. And I'm not sure I want to play against a defense that's starting to find its footing and an offense that's getting healthy with Tom Brady looking like he's turned a corner just as the schedule gets most important, just as the playoffs are looming on the horizon. And look, for whatever reason, Buccaneers offensive coordinator Byron Leftwich spent a good chunk of the first half of this season trying to mold the Buccaneers' offense into a run-based scheme. And it wasn't working. You saw how inconsistent they were. 
wasn't working. Rashad White came on strong on Sunday. I think he's going to be a player for them. He can do it all. Catch the ball out of the backfield, 100-plus yard running back every week. Him and Fournette are going to be a nice duo down the stretch. But when you put the ball back in Tom Brady's hands, he had his second-highest QBR of the season. That's the formula. You have the greatest quarterback of all time. Now he has some of his weapons getting back on the field around him. That's that's how you win. Let Tom Brady be the focal point. Let Tom Brady be the driving force. And if I'm on that side of the bracket, if I'm in the NFC, if I'm the San Francisco 49ers, if I'm the New York Giants, if I'm the Dallas Cowboys, I want no part of that. I want no part of Tampa Bay. Nope. I wouldn't want to play... Tom Brady firing on all cylinders in January. No, thank you. In the AFC, you know, we've talked a lot about the trade deadline over the last couple of weeks here as it came and went. And there have been some big moves. Obviously, you look at some of the trades on defense. You look at Roquan Smith going to Baltimore, getting the Ravens an off-ball linebacker who's a real playmaker. You look at Bradley Chubb going to the Dolphins, adding to their pass rush opposite of Jalen Phillips. You look at the Eagles bringing in Robert Quinn. A lot of guys who are going to make pretty instant impacts or at least have impacts on their team's postseason chances this year. And, of course, Christian McCaffrey goes to the 49ers. But I'm not so sure that there was a trade that was made that is going to have more upside in 2022 than the Miami Dolphins deal for running back Jeff Wilson. Because I think that move has flown under the radar. But I think it's a move that's going to pay instant dividends It already has on Sunday, but I think it's going to pay real dividends for the Dolphins the rest of this season. Now, Wilson was obviously expendable when the Niners traded for McCaffrey, and we've all seen what McCaffrey's impact on the 49ers has been. He basically single-handedly won them that game against the Rams where he did it all, caught a touchdown, threw a touchdown, ran for a touchdown. First time since Ladanian Tomlinson did it that that's been done. He might be the missing piece to the 49ers making a run at the Super Bowl. But Wilson, he may have put the Dolphins over the top. He may have put the Dolphins from a team that is going to be on the outskirts of the postseason. Maybe they they compete for a wild card to, hey, you've already beaten the Bills once. The Bills are floundering. You add another weapon into that offense. Wilson might be the piece that makes the Dolphins the team to beat suddenly in the AFC East. Because when you look at what that offense is and how they're winning right now, Tua Tagovailoa is having one of the most impressive seasons of any quarterback across the entire league. And in a lot of ways, he's been buoyed by Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. Obviously, those guys are two of the more explosive wide receivers in the game, and they're playing like it. But Wilson has a chance to take some pressure off of Tua. He's a guy who can catch the ball out of the backfield. And he's a guy that can really make defenses pay for all of the respect that they have to pay Hill and Waddle on the outside. If you're going to put if you're going to drop an extra defensive back into coverage, if you're going to play with uh, 5 to 7 yards cushion or so because you don't want to get burnt over the top by Waddle and Tua, okay. We're just going to hand it off to Jeff Wilson. We're going to throw a screen pass to him out of the backfield and take advantage of all that extra space. Because Sunday afternoon against the Browns, Wilson averaged seven yards per carry. Seven. He rushed for 119 yards and a touchdown. Wilson has a chance, and I think that he took a big step to doing it against Cleveland, 
of really separating himself from Raheem Mostert in any sort of backfield by committee that was starting to shape up with the Dolphins. And the Dolphins wisely brought him in. They made this trade. They could have gone out and got any running back. They could have flipped an additional asset and brought in Nick Chubb. They could have, you know, gone and got Kareem Hunt, maybe. They could have gone and got Naeem Hines, who is going to be potentially a difference maker for the Bills, even though they have a loaded backfield in Buffalo. But they went and got Jeff Wilson in large part because he has familiarity in head coach Mike McDaniel's scheme from their time together with the 49ers. So you have a playmaker who's built for that scheme, kind of like San Francisco was able to get in Christian McCaffrey. And I had a current NFL offensive coach tell me that he thinks the Dolphins are for real, can make a run, but it's Jeff Wilson's presence that's going to take a ton of pressure off of McDaniel as a play caller and Tua as a quarterback because of his versatility, because of how comfortable he is in that scheme, and because when you look at how Miami has won and had been winning, now you don't have to rely on Tua to carry the entire offense. You don't need to worry about what happens if you line up against one of the better secondaries in the league and they can limit Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle just a little bit. Christian McCaffrey may wind up having the better career in San Francisco, but that offense is downright loaded. George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk. I think Wilson may be the bigger difference maker in 2022. I think Jeff Wilson has the chance to be the biggest impact addition that anybody has made at the NFL trade deadline for this year. And if you want to talk about instant impact, look no further than the impact that Justin Jefferson had on that win for the Minnesota Vikings against the Buffalo Bills. And that ridiculous one-handed grab that he made. Look, okay, I need to get this off my chest, right? We mentioned Justin Jefferson's ridiculous one-handed catch against the Bills. But here's the thing. His stat line was equally outrageous. You look at what he did in that game, 10 receptions, 193 yards, and a touchdown. He put the Minnesota Vikings on his back against the most dominant team in the NFL with an elite secondary and very nearly single-handedly on his own won that football game. And if you're trying to build the case that Justin Jefferson is the preeminent wide receiver in the NFL, that's the game tape that you put on. That's the game that you watch. His performance in the fourth quarter and overtime against the Buffalo Bills. But I really want to dive into that one-handed grab for a second here and talk directly to New York Giants fans for just a moment. Because I know Odell Beckham Jr.'s one-handed catch against the Cowboys back in the day was spectacular. At the time, it was the most impressive catch that I've ever seen. And I think you can make a a case that that's the greatest catch in NFL history. I really think you can because of the athleticism that it took to pull that down. The fact that it was a touchdown, it obviously helps. It's the play that sparked an entire generation of wide receivers like Justin Jefferson, like Jamar Chase, like Devonta Smith, like Jalen Waddell. To spend hours on a jugs machine after practice, sometimes in their homes, practicing one-handed grabs. The Odell Beckham catch sparked that movement, sparked this generation to want to replicate it or improve on it. 
it's the standard that we've set high rate real catches against ever since. And it was a touchdown again. So that obviously adds value. That makes it more important. That makes it really impressive. But in my opinion, if you ask me today, there's a new greatest catch in NFL history. What Justin Jefferson did in a spot that his team absolutely needed him to make a special play. The catch he made was truly spectacular. It wasn't just a one-handed catch. Because if you watch the replay and you look at the picture, we've had it up on the screen. Cam Lewis had two hands on the football. He basically had it in his hands like he was grabbing a loaf of bread. And still, Justin Jefferson with one hand pulled down that catch. From a balance standpoint, it was falling backwards. From an athleticism standpoint, off the charts. And from a pure strength standpoint, to make that catch with one hand against an NFL defensive back who has two hands on the football, I've never seen anything like it in my life. In a lot of ways, that's what puts it in the company of the Odell Beckham catch. That's what makes it even more impressive than the Odell Beckham catch because it was in traffic, because it was a contested catch. I don't think anybody's seen anything quite like this. And the Vikings don't win that game without that catch. Remember, it was fourth down and 18. If that's an interception, obviously game over. If he doesn't make that catch, it falls to the turf. The Bills kneel on the ball, game over. Done. Over. So Odell Beckham's catch was a touchdown. Certainly changed the trajectory of the game. That game ends without Justin Jefferson's catch. And I'm still not sure how he came down with that football. It was one of the more impressive things I've ever seen in any sport, certainly on a football field. And it's certainly the greatest catch in an NFL game that I've ever seen. For my money, it's the greatest catch in NFL history. That's that's how impressive that catch was by Justin Jefferson. Let's hand out the Lombardo Trophy. How about that? Now, we could have easily gone chalk here. We could have easily given the Lombardo Trophy to Justin Jefferson, not just because of the catch, but because of the 10 catches, because of the touchdown, because he single-handedly won that game for the Minnesota Vikings, and it was a huge win. We already gave out the MVP of the week to Justin Jefferson in my Monday morning column, go read it at heavy.com. We're going to go in a different direction here because there's someone and a group of people that I think is more deserving than the Lombardo Trophy, and that's Ron Rivera and the Washington Commanders coaching staff. I'm giving the Lombardo Trophy for Week 10 to Ron Rivera and the Washington Commander staff because they put together a really brilliant game plan in Philadelphia by keeping the Eagles' all-star team of an offense off the field for 40 minutes. They stuck to their commitment to run the football, and they left Philadelphia on Monday night with one of the biggest wins of the weekend, one of the more impressive upsets of the entire season, and they kept their playoff hopes alive. They're only a half game back of the 49ers in the NFC playoffs. They're 500 now. They're a real factor in this division. I think Rivera deserves a lot of credit for that. And you think about everything that Ron Rivera has been through recently, the cancer diagnosis last season and the treatment that he had to go through, losing his mother recently, on top of essentially needing to try to resurrect the reputation of that entire franchise after Commander's owner Daniel Snyder has spent a whole generation basically dragging it through the mud. Good for Rivera. Good for the commanders. 
that that win was really impressive. And I think that when you talk about the more impressive performances of the weekend, it's at the top of the list. It's up there with the Vikings going in and beating the Bills. Listen, Vikings Bills, that's a quasi realistic Super Bowl preview, right? I mean, the, the Vikings are the second best team in the NFC. I think the Eagles are better. The Eagles beat them. And there's a good chance if the Eagles stay the course, the NFC title game goes through Philadelphia. But that was a Super Bowl preview in Buffalo. The Eagles are a Super Bowl contending team. The Commanders are on the fringes of the postseason, and Rivera and the Commanders got it done. Good for them. Ron Rivera takes home the Lombardo Trophy. Finally, the segment that we look forward to every week, the pick of the week. And here's the thing. I I love the Saints minus three and a half over the Rams. Interesting game. And it's early. There's still a lot of football left to be played. The season is far from over. But it's getting pretty close to time to call it for the Los Angeles Rams and call them what they are. Call the season what it is. A colossal disappointment. The Rams just haven't quite seemed right ever since week one. And Buffalo going in there and punching them in the mouth on the night that they got their Super Bowl rings and kind of embarrassing them. I don't know if it's not having Odell Beckham Jr. I don't know if it's not having Von Miller. We see the impact that Miller has every week, very nearly clinching that win for the Bills on Sunday. He's won a handful of games for them single-handedly, including in Kansas City with timely sacks in the fourth quarter, changing the trajectory of outcomes of games. But they haven't exactly intimidated their opponents this year, right? The, The Rams? haven't exactly had the same vibe or the same energy that they had on that run to the Super Bowl win last year. And now Sunday they lose to the Arizona Cardinals, which very rarely happens. Huge loss for them in the division, by the way. I think it opens the door pretty wide for the San Francisco 49ers. Matthew Stafford's banged up. Now you're without Cooper Cup for several weeks. Cooper Cup's the top three receiver or better reigning Super Bowl MVP. You're without him in that offense. And and here's, here's the thing. Full disclosure, I have three TVs in the home office. I'm watching every game at once between NFL Red Zone and the two games that are on broadcast TV. I can't see myself focusing in all that closely on this game because the Saints offense is annoying to watch too. There's no real identity there either. And Other than Chris Olave, they've just seemed out of sync for most of the year, kind of like the Rams. But the Rams are just too banged up. They don't look themselves. There's nothing about that Rams team that that screams to me contender. There's nothing about that Rams team that screams to me capable of repeating. And there's not much about that Rams team that screams to me can go on the road and win. And I think going into the Superdome in a loud and hostile environment against a really desperate Saints team that's lost four of their last five, even beating New Orleans, Feels like a tall order for the Los Angeles Rams right now. So I like the Saints three and a half, minus three and a half points as my pick of the week. Give me New Orleans. This is a fun show. Loved breaking down some of the biggest storylines of the weekend. It certainly was a busy weekend, an exciting weekend across the NFL. Some big games coming up on Sunday. Thanks to my producer, Thomas Darrow. Does a tremendous job behind the scenes each and every week. Instrumental to this podcast getting up and running thanks to everyone at heavy sports you can follow me on twitter at matt lombardo nfl please go ahead and subscribe to the matt lombardo show in the apple podcast store spotify soundcloud throw us a like on youtube 
to head over to the Apple Podcast Store, leave us a five-star review. It really helps grow the show. I'm Matt Lombardo. I'll talk to you next week right here on the Matt Lombardo Show, presented by Heavy Sports.